Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Jonathan Sachs, who for many years was the uh, kind of the chief rabbi in the United Kingdom, wrote this warning in his final book titled uh, Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, just before his death in 2020. He said this, that we are undergoing the cultural equivalent of climate change. And only when we realize this will we understand the strange things that have been happening in the 21st century in the realm of politics and economics, the deterioration of public standards of truth and civil debate, and the threat to freedom of speech. And he goes on in his book to say that all countries and cultures have three basic institutions. There's the economy, which is about the creation and distribution of wealth. There's the state, which is about the legitimization and distribution of power. And then third, there is the moral system, which he defines as the voice of society within the self, the we within the I, the common good that limits and directs our pursuit of private gain. It's the voice that says no to the individual me for the sake of the collective us. And so in other words, in order to get on in the world and get people to do what we want them to do or what we need them to do, we can either pay them to do so, which is economics, right? We can force them to do so, which is politics, or we can persuade them to do so because we're a part of a framework of virtues and values and codes and customs. According to Sachs, this is morality. And he says that there is a covenantal uh, character of society, that among other things, human beings have a collective responsibility. And in order to thrive, we must live in solidarity, working for the good of all. And in fact, historically, nations' fate, according to Sachs, has been determined by how they treat the most vulnerable. But as we lose our connection, our collective connection with society overall, we no longer care about those that are less fortunate, and we can even become radicalized into seeking the demise of other cultures and people groups so that they're not just different, they become the enemy. Without this morality, according to Sachs, we are mainly concerned with how everything affects me as an individual. So then we have little motivation or concern in finding solutions to problems that don't affect us as individuals or our people as we see it. I mean, would it shock you that recently Stanford conducted a study that showed Americans are much more likely to be motivated by appeals to independence than interdependence? Would you be shocked by that? Even if it's something that, that is for the common good, 
according to the study, Americans need to be motivated by how it will benefit them personally, individually. We're living in a culture of me, and yet Jesus taught the opposite. The Bible invites us into a life of generosity, and I don't just mean financially. That's part of it. But the teachings of Jesus invite us into a life that is giving to the people around us. And yet we live in a culture that seems the opposite. So the question is, how do we live? As Christians, how, what voice do we follow? And Peter's first letter that we've been studying here has been guiding us in, this, in how to do that. We've, we've titled this series Countercultural, which, you know, to be countercultural means you're a group or a people that live by a different set of values than the surrounding culture. And it's interesting, it's interesting how Peter approaches that particularly in our day and time. And today, the text we're going to look at, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 4, uh, he, kind of, he reveals the core of what it means to be a Christian, to believe and act Christianly. And it's more than a set of doctrines or like these fundamental beliefs about, that we consent to about who Jesus is or our own personal sin or need of salvation. Just because someone calls himself a Christian or even believes these fundamental things, that's no guarantee that they will actually believe and behave Christianly. And in this day and age, it's very possible that we can acquiesce to fundamental Christian ideas and belief in Jesus, but be motivated by, or I would say manipulated by, the me culture. And we can take this section that's in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11, and we can break his thoughts into two separate sections or topics. The first, in verses 1 through 6, are kind of like the underlying motive for life, the Christian motive. And, and you're going to see that Peter contrasts that motive for living with the, with the culture of his day. And I think that we're going to be able to make some contextual uh, connections for us and in verses 7 through 11, what this motivation, this different motive creates, a way to live, uh, which, what it looks like to live with this different motive. So the first section is all about motive and intent and purpose for living in the section. The second section is four identifying characteristics of those who live by this different motive. The first section is about the transformational life of generosity that Jesus invites us into. And the second section is what that Jesus transformation looks like on a person or a group of people or a church. You ready? ready. Okay, thank you. So first section, the Christian motive is distinct from culture. And that may not be shocking to you, I realize. But... When I say motive here, I'm talking about intent, our purpose, something that's deep inside us that drives us and guides us. And in verses uh, 1 through 2, Peter starts this way. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. 
And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So I often talk about the Bible or the teachings of Jesus being like a compass to me. Can you relate to that? It's like you use a compass to guide yourself, right? And, you know, maybe you haven't had that opportunity. Maybe you're not a hiker or a fireman that's out in the wilderness somewhere or a mountain biker that's lost. I mean, a compass becomes very, very important when your uh, eye maps doesn't work, you know, when you're beyond the reach of what your phone can do. The cultural compass has self as the true north. And in fact, if you, had a, if you had a cultural compass, at where the N is on your compass today, it would just say me. You get that? It's like, that's, that's what I really, that's my main guide in determining which way I'm going to go. But the true north for the believer, Peter points out, and he says it like in two different ways, but it's the same thing. Number one, the example of Jesus. In verse one, he said that we're to be armed with the same attitude as Christ. Attitude isn't just like, you know, kind of like your emotional uh, status, uh, whether you have a good attitude or a bad attitude. It's a moral understanding. It's a way of thinking. And as Christians, the example of Jesus is what we seek to emulate. Our motive then in, the, in what is guiding us in life is to demonstrate Christ to those around us. That's why we... He- talk at Sunridge about we are helping people find and follow Jesus, right? So our identity isn't drawn, isn't, doesn't come from like anything that's happening culturally. Our identity is found in emulating Christ in this day and time. And the second thing uh, that Peter says about this guide is he, he says the example of Jesus, and then the second is the will of God. He says that in verse 2, and in order, that the will of God is, is what guides us. And to, in order to like, know what that is, we have to go back to the original will of God, right? And we often do this here at Sunridge. In Genesis 1, we see that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them uh, in his image, and he gave them a responsibility, an assignment to care for the world, and to go into the world and to help it to flourish, to make the world the place that God had designed it to be. So the images that Peter gives us, are, there are two images, but they say the same thing. One is uh, we have an image that we are following a rabbi. We've talked about that. Jesus was a rabbi in his day, and, and they would gather followers, and they would seek to just be like their rabbi. So we're following him, and then the other images were basically cultivators or farmers, We're creating an environment in the world by the way we live. And that motive that Peter brings out of the example of Jesus or the will of God is in direct contrast to uh, the culture. If you see in verse 2, I'll put it up there, it says, as a result, as a result of these motives, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires. If you're not a Christian, and you might, you might have all of these ideas or possibly misconceptions about what a Christian is because of what you see on TV or because of what you read in a newspaper or what you see on social media, you know, 
Fundamentally, a Christian is somebody who, deep in their heart, they're following Christ. And so, the way we choose to behave or the the things that become important to us or the ways in which we seek happiness or satisfaction, they come out of this sense of who Jesus Christ is. That's, a, that's the fundamental thing. So often I know that like we're not, Christians are not perfect. The church is definitely not perfect. You see bad examples of that. And you just have to, like, one, you, you should accept that Christians are imperfect. I'm not making excuses for us, but I want you to see if you're, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with being a Christian that this is, this is the goal or the ultimate thing that we're seeking. If we're seeking truly to, to follow the example of Christ. Now, when, when Peter says that we don't live our earthly lives as the way other, other people do, according to their evil desires or those desires that are not uh, centered on God. He's not saying that we live against the culture. That's not our motive. It's just like, whatever they're doing, we do the opposite. That's called Baptist, I think. Uh, no. <laughs> as, a, as a former Baptist, I can just say that joke. Okay, so like, I'm just checking to see if you're with me. I'm, just, I'm only joking. But we, we, the Baptist, anyway, I won't, and I've already made you mad, so maybe I should just like, strike that from the record. Because that wasn't even in my notes, it just came out. So we're not trying to like battle the culture, but we're not, also not trying to live in compliance to it, right? So it's not, it's not driven by the culture at all. So we have a choice. Living here today in this Temecula Valley, as people who are defined as Christians or we would identify as Christ followers, we have, we have a choice. I could do that or I could do this. And the way we decide should be to emulate Christ or in keeping with the will of God. And we indeed do get to choose our behaviors. We'll get to that in a few moments. But as a Christian, you have to get this. Christianity isn't about getting us to comply with certain behaviors or standards or, you know, rules and regulations. It's all about motive. Being a Christian and living as a Christian really gets down deeper than that to what is deep inside of, our, you know, the Bible would say your heart, but it's also your brain, right? Like what... What is it that we're really seeking in the end? And this is why spiritual formation is so important. We talk about it a lot here. It's like we have to sink our roots deep in the teachings of Christ, in understanding of Scripture, because out of that is, that is shaping who we are. That's why we call it spiritual formation. And it's, it's so easy for us to be shaped by other influences in our culture. Wouldn't you agree? Don't you find yourself like, you know, like heading down a certain way? It's like, and then when you compare it to Jesus, like, that's not Jesus, you know? I got I to gotta backtrack on that, like making a Baptist joke or something, you know? <laughs> because you can identify as a Christian, but then have the same motives that are driving you 
is the unchristian culture. This worldview, or like, um, you know, like a, a, um, or a contrast to how we live, a motivation for life, is a common theme of Paul as well. This is, I just put this in your notes, it's just there, but 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So like even down to the most mundane things, I'm existing to bring glory to God, to the people around me. And the Christian then doesn't live by these typical human motivations. And um, here Peter exemplifies this, or he contrasts it by some of the first century accepted pursuits. This was their culture, okay? In some ways we'll relate to it, in some ways not. But in verse 3 he says, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And pagans isn't a pejorative word, it's like, it's like just a, they don't follow Christ. It's like anything that isn't Christian is pagan, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So it's basically the 60s, right? <laughs> it's brought back, brought the first century back in the 60s. And they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So what's going on here? I mean, first of all, I want to point out how Peter puts this. He says, you spend enough time living that way. Um, don't you want something different as a Christian? Isn't there a longing inside us that this thing, whether it's this list or a, a, a modern list, isn't there something more for us, is what he's getting at. In the first century, culture wasn't horrible. I mean, it wasn't terrible to live in the Roman Empire. I mean, it wasn't all bad. They had modern cities. History shows us in archaeology. They had peace based on power. But then all that, like they had wealth, but the excess that comes with that um, was, were these things. This was, their, this, is, this was like how they became culturally happy. This is what they did with their discretionary time. They just partied like a rock star, it appears, <laughs> right? But Christians were living differently. And the way Peter puts it, as a result of your conversion, you don't live the rest of your lives like that. You used to live like that. And again, it's not about the list. It's about what is driving us inside. These Christians in the first century, they changed. They stopped doing some of the things that they were doing. They expressed different ideas among their friends. They questioned some of the practices of the day, and they had different values if you came from a religious background, maybe you were Jewish, you started gathering at a church instead of a temple or a synagogue. Or maybe both for a while, but eventually they were actually forced out of the temple because they were gathering with Christians at other times. And if you were from a pagan background, then you stopped participating in all these 
you know, orgies and, you know, getting drunk, you know, for three days and just gorging yourself with food or being involved in illicit sex, you know, just like a temple of prostitution. These are all things, you know, maybe earmuffs for your kids if they're in here. But this is like, that was an accepted way of living. And so when they started to question the ways of their friends, um, people treated them differently. Because they weren't coming any longer from just like this underneath the Roman society's drive for them. Like what was, the, what was Rome saying is the, the, the culturally accepted way of thinking. And they weren't coming from this the, the Judaism side either, where there was like so much religious exclusion. But they were, they were being guided by reflecting the image of God in, in their world. And that different way of living brought on a response from the culture. And it's typical. Verse 4 said, They are surprised that you do not join them and they're reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So what Peter's bringing out is that oftentimes when you live by this different motive, um, it will set you apart from relationships that you had formerly before you became a Christian. Those of you that were converted as adults, maybe you can relate to this more than those that were like, you know, you can never remember not being in church. And the idea here isn't that Christians dump their non-Christian friends. What Peter is saying is you should recognize that they may dump you because you're living different. And that rejection or the demonizing of someone who is different is an unchristian reaction. And Peter says, as a Christian who lives by a different motive, it's going to happen. But because we have a motive of emulating Christ or following the will of God, we don't have to strike back in the same manner, even though you want to. In fact, he gives us a little bit of comfort here, right in the middle of this passage. He, as we faced op opposition, Peter brings out two things for us to remember. Number one is that God shapes us through struggle. And isn't it true that like, when you struggle, when, when you're suffering in some way, it has a purifying effect on us? He says in verse 1, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Have, have you ever just gotten to a point? Don't raise your hands. We won't do interaction with one another on this, but it's like you're just sick of like, what you were doing. That's what he's bringing out. That... You know, something that used to attract you before you became a Christian, now you can't even enjoy it. And it might even, like, like not just make you uncomfortable, it, it might repulse you. That old thing that you did. And the truth is that suffering or adversity is where our growth comes from. God takes us through that. Remember, um, earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 7, Peter said that the trial of our faith is like precious gold. Like there's a process to bring gold about. It's turning up the heat and scraping off the, 
the dross, so to speak, so that the gold comes, the pure thing comes to the surface. And all of us can relate to this, the struggling that God puts us through, whether it comes from our culture or just from living life, those all have a purifying effect on us. He shapes us through that. If you're struggling in your marriage right now, like and you're trying to learn to communicate, whatever your struggles are right now, you know, God is growing you through that. And you can look at that struggle as, you know, well, I just need to get rid of this person because that person is the problem. And I want you to know that probably you're the problem too. And God is shaping you by that friction that you're experiencing in that person that you were so attracted to seven years ago or 30 years ago. When you have a big decision to make and you grind on it and you're like super focused on it, doesn't God grow you through that? Isn't there a shaping that takes place? Or when, you, when you're like struggling with a, a thing you need to do, you have to confront an issue. You have to just like deal with it, whether it's a person or something in your organization. And, and you, you struggle with that. You pray about it. You think about it. You seek advice. Doesn't God shape you through that? Trials are like when we find out what we really believe and what we're, we, we discover the genuineness of our faith. But that, that struggle shapes us. And then the second thing Peter brings out is that there's ultimate accountability. He wants us to know this. That while you're getting piled on by your culture, you have this assurance that God, God sees. And we've talked about this a lot through this letter. But in verse 5, he says, But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And I know a lot of you are focusing on verse 6 right now. You know, what in the world does that mean? Common, uh, scholars have debated this forever, and I'm not a scholar, so I'm going to give you my best guess based on the scholars that I've read. And, of course, we can debate this in the future if you want, uh, if you buy me lunch. But <laughs> the vast uh, amount of commentators believe that Peter's referring to the Christians in Asia Minor who had heard the gospel while they were alive but now are physically dead. Simple answer. But what he's getting at here is that there, there's accountability. There will be a judgment. And I know that judgment has gotten a bad rap. Um, it's unpopular to say that God will hold a human being accountable. But the Bible is clear on that. Even if it's out of fashion for us to talk about it, there is ultimate accountability. In fact, to not believe in a judgment or accountability is to not believe in justice. You get that, right? If everybody just gets a buy, now is, is it like what you've heard in hellfire and brimstone? I, I'm not going to answer that question right now. But there is judgment. And there must be in order for there to be justice. And I think that in our attempts to eliminate judgment, or even hell, um, that, that, that's first world theology. We sit in, in a world where like, it's like we can be super comfortable about this. 
and we don't have, we don't face a lot of the, the stresses that maybe in another country people are facing. And I can assure you, Christians in the Middle East believe in the justice of God. So we can live in the world that we feel estranged from or maybe even abused by, as Peter says here, um, with the assurance that God is shaping us and that God sees. And there will be accountability for that. So that's the motive part. And the second section, he talks more about the practicalities of what this looks like. The Christian motive then replaces the me idol with a generous spirit. That is the effect of this motive. The motive of me first disappears. Some of it immediately in conversion, and some of it we work on by constantly being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. You know that each one of us is an idol to ourselves. Uh, I heard heard recently um, that an idol is... uh, Something that in the beginning promises you everything um, and asks nothing, but in the end asks everything and gives you nothing. Yeah, that's what I think too, huh? That's a good one. But the truth is, none of us make very good idols. We're not really worth worshiping. You know, you think, when we think idol, we think this wooden thing or some animal, you know, in some, like, jungle or different context. But, like, we're just basically worshiping ourselves constantly here. That's what the me culture is all about. And you can see it. But for those who are motivated or even being transformed to be motivated by this different intent or purpose, example of Christ, will of God, you can see it. You can see this generous spirit toward people around us. You see it, first of all, by praying with our eyes wide open. He says to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And this is interesting, you know. Uh, how many of you, like, have always thought you're supposed to pray with your eyes closed? Be honest. Like, and we, most of us close our eyes, and I remember being a new Christian and praying for lunch one time uh, with a group of high school friends. And um, there was one uh, of our friends, she was not a Christian, and she just kept her eyes open the whole time. And so, like, how did I know that? Because <laughs> I peeked. And then, like, being the good Christian that I was, I, ch- I said, you didn't close your eyes when we prayed. And she goes, well, why should I close my eyes? I don't know, you know. <laughs> Because that's what they do at my church. And so I was busted. And ever since then, it's like, you know, you can pray with your eyes open. And, but I'm not just talking about literally. I'm talking about metaphorically, too. We have to have our eyes wide open. Earlier, um, Peter talked about this. And here he repeats it, being alert and of sober mind. That's just like aware. And seeing what is happening around us. Jesus said to watch and pray. But that doesn't mean we get carried away by that, by what we see. Because if, if your eyes are wide open, it's going to be easy to get anxious, to be fearful, 
and to see things that aren't even there because you're just fearful. And by the way, these are things that our culture uses to manipulate us. Fear and anger. We talked about outrage last week. Did, how many of you saw the 60 Minutes piece of the whistleblower at Facebook? Anybody? You should watch it. And what, what they're revealing uh, is that social media uses our outrage to keep us clicking. And also fear. And it, just, and it causes us to fall into a, like an echo chamber or like a, a rut of information because social media is continuing to feed that. It reads that from our responses. Interesting. But this idea that Peter's saying is like that alertness or open, mind, open eyes turns us toward who? Toward God and pray in prayer. And that's not just like, see this and do this thing. If I'm motivated by the example of Christ and the will of God, when I see what's wrong, I know, who do I go to? Where are my answers found? Where's the ultimate truth going to be? And who's the one that can ultimately truly change the world? It's God. So we should bring everything we see to God. Secondly, um, you'll see this by upping our love game. Upping our love game. When you're stressed, how do you treat others? Loving? Yeah, me too. <laughs> Usually when we're stressed, we, uh, it's every man for himself, right? We just click in to that. And um, how many of you feel like we've gotten less loving in the last 10 years and more critical of one another? One hand. <laughs> and you don't have to raise your hand because then you're just going to make people around you less loving because they're going to get mad that you said that. <laughs> and are we getting more and more narrow about things? So that, if, well, if you don't see this like I do, then like, you're out. And here, Peter says, in this context where we're under fire, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, let me just show you something here. The love is agape love, which if you've been in church, that's the ultimate love. That's the God love, okay? You're to love in the God way, which is intentionally and without ceasing and unconditionally. But not just do that. Do it deeply. And not just do this God love deeply, but above all, do that. He's just, do you get it? That's the thing that should be coming out of the Jesus follower today. You know, I, all my life I wanted to be a tough guy. And, uh, you know, that was just who I was or who I wanted to be. I never was really that tough. But if you were smaller than me, I would be tough with you. Let's, let's put it that way. Or you were a girl. I could be totally tough with you and knock you out in a second. And, um, but eventually, um, I wanted to be the love guy. 
And I've made jokes about this in the past, you know, like, I know you guys want to call me the love guy. I know you see it. But, like, there's a lot of you men out here right now, and the reason why I point this out is not to be sexist or anything like that, but, like, for a lot of men, tough guy is our thing. And that's not a Jesus thing. I just have to let you know. You got to be the love guy. Who will be the love guy with me? Okay, six of us. All right. <laughs> and here's the thing Peter says. is like what that will accomplish is it covers over a multitude of sins. Like being that kind of person gives you like a, a capacity to accept people. And that kind of leads into the next one. A person who's motivated by the example of Christ, you can see it by, they make space, by making space for someone. And the way Peter puts it is to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I know when you see that word hospitality, doesn't that make you think of like a division in a hotel chain? You know, like there's the hospitality division. But it really just means opening up your home. And of course, it means metaphorically opening up our space to others. Sometimes we read the Bible too clinically. But you have to ask yourself, like, can't you just insert yourself into their cultural context of being under fire, persecution just a few years away? And why does Peter need to say this to the Christian community? Why does he need to say, you know, you need to make some space for each other? It makes me wonder, what conversations were they having? What kind of tensions were they facing because they were under the thumb of Rome? Um, talk about a government that was, like, oppressive. Uh, do, do you think that there were rumors and what we would call conspiracy theories today in their culture when, when you're under attack and you're afraid, you're anxious? Don't you think that they were experiencing the same thing and wondering, is this true? Is it not true? Is that going to happen, or is that just nonsense? Are they trying to do this to me? Or it's like, is this just a thing? I just picture them having that. Like, what, do you, they felt estranged. Certainly, they felt out of touch with what was happening. Peter says that you're like exiles and foreigners in your culture. You don't, you're on the fringe, and you don't belong. So they had to face all of that. And, and to that, Peter says, you know, make some space for people around you. Sit with them and let them have different ideas and talk to them because that's what happens. Instead, I think we kind of like, we close up. Um, my, one of my daughters, well, all of my daughters have a lot of dogs, but like, that's, another, that's another sermon. But um, <laughs> we were just up visiting our daughter in Fresno and she has four dogs and they're all vying for your attention constantly. So if you sit on the couch, every dog comes to you. <laughs> and they all want to be scratched. And they get mad when you're scratching the other one. So they're in constant competition. You can be scratching one and the other one's coming over trying to, trying to nuzzle. <coughs> or excuse me. And, or like if you are with one and you're scratching it and any other dog comes by, they're like, they're just kind of block, do all that. Sometimes, <clears throat> And... I'm not calling you dogs. I just want to make that <laughs> clear. But like, isn't that what we do when we're under that kind of stress? 
It's like we want to close it up and we want all the scratches to go to us. I know, it's like, hey, I'm not a scholar, I already said that, but this is the way I look at the world, folks. So when we're motivated by Jesus' example and by demonstrating God's image in the world, we're invited to make room in our lives and have conversations with people that we wouldn't have. And we invite them to the table. Danny talked about that a few weeks ago. And didn't Jesus go around and have meals and celebrate with people that like it bugged the religious people? Wasn't that, isn't that something that we can emulate? Can we open up our homes or mainly our hearts and then everything else to like to have a conversation? And instead of just rejecting somebody who would say something or believe something that's different than us, I just think that that had to be a part of what was going on then. And Peter's saying, make space, make your circle bigger and sit with them. And did you catch what he said? Without grumbling. I love that. I mean, what... I mean, it's like I get, I, maybe I just study the Bible too much, but like, what made him say that? Maybe because they were human beings. Maybe they were doing some of this stuff, but just grumbling about it all the time. And isn't it true, if we're under stress and somebody's causing us, nudging us to open up and like do something we didn't know, do we get grumbly? I know you guys don't, but you guys, I have never seen a time Maybe I've just been unaware, but I've never seen a time where being grumbly is a virtue like it is today. It is a virtue. And haven't you noticed that people just walk up to you and be grumpy? Like you're going to be grumpy with them. Like you're, they're already assuming that you're on their grumpy page. You remember when people had a little common sense? And they, you know, like you'd have a conversation with someone and before you like dumped your radical idea, your grumbliness, like you'd make sure, you'd like feel it out. Are they going to be on my page? Now we just walk up and start in on it. It's like, hey, rah, and it's like, dude, I'm not on that page. Or you can just say something, and it's like, it's under the surface constantly. There's this grumbliness. You can, you can say, what a beautiful day. Has it, ha, hasn't the weather been awesome in this valley? What a beautiful day. Well, it's a beautiful day because we finally stopped the unrestrained capitalists from polluting the world into oblivion. <laughs> or it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah, well, we just need to make sure we keep the socialists out of the White House for another term. Otherwise, you won't be able to go outside and look at the beautiful day without taking the mark of the beast. It's like, dude, I'm just saying it's a beautiful day. Don't be bringing your grumbliness to me. <laughs> Offer hospitality without grumbling. And then last, and this kind of like this is the culmination or the, like the last thing, by focusing on helping others. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. You, what you have is a gift of God. And what you have, whether it's money, time, 
experience, a moment of compassion, assets, education, a place, you know, like all the stuff that we have that is who we are, a family, an experience. These are all things that God has given us. And as people who are motivated by living out the example of Christ and demonstrating the will of God, um, we see these things as something that has been given to us to serve others. See, that's the difference in the me culture and the culture of generosity that the example of Christ and the motive of the will of God gives us. In verse 11, Peter shows how it's not just what we say, but it's also what we do. It's both if anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do, with, do so with the strength God provides. So that, is this a common theme with Peter? In all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. So what I say and what I do is based on the thoughts that God has given me and the things and resources that he's given me. And he says, all that that we have, we can serve others with that. But that is not the cultural paradigm. How are we using what God has given us? If you, some of you are business owners in our audience today, or you're you know, like a major supervisor or CEO, what if you had a manager that you gave all these resources to? You gave them people, you gave them money, you gave them a territory, you gave them equipment and assets, and then you found out that they were using all of that stuff for their own personal benefit rather than for what the company wanted them to do with it. You would have them arrested, right? Well, for the Christian, Peter says that these things that we have are an example, to, they're an opportunity to serve others. In the last couple of years, I mean, take, take, take this test with me. Like in the last couple of years, have you seen what God has given you through that light? Have you seen that you, how God has blessed you? And in any way that he has, have you, do you see that as something that he has given you for the benefit of those around us? That's living generously. And that's a countercultural way to live. And it's what Peter is bringing out in this passage. <clears throat> I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I want to just go back to something that Peter said from the very beginning here. Um, he said, uh, the end of all things is near. And so like, what he's, that, that prefaced what he just completed saying in this section. And so in other words, he's saying there's kind of an urgency here. Uh, some of you football fans are going to relate to this. You know what a, a, a two-minute drill is? Two-minute drill? Like in a football game, those of you that don't know about football, um, the last two minutes, if a team's behind, they, they have a plan. 
<clears throat> they have a whole thing worked out that if they could win the game, like they, they institute this. And you practice it. It's like preloaded. It's like you play the game differently in the last two minutes. And it's all scripted. And that's kind of what Peter's saying as, as he rolled out these four plays. You have four downs. And he's saying, end this last time. Because we're near the end. It's especially important that we play differently. Do you know that many times games are won in the last two minutes because they executed their two-minute drill, their two-minute game plan? You know, the Packers beat the 49ers just a couple of weeks ago in the last seconds of a game. With, you know what a walk-off field goal is? Like a field goal that's kicked with only a few seconds left. Do you like that visual? Um, <laughs> the, that just came naturally to me. They, they kick a field goal with just a few seconds left in the game so that it can't be answered, and they win. And that, the Packers did that. And just this weekend, undefeated Alabama was beaten by a really struggling team, Texas A&M, in a walk-off field goal. Two seconds left, pop, Alabama loses. They were 5-0. and Now they have a loss, which I think we should all praise God for that. <laughs> and here's the thing. Like, we talk too much in church about changing the world. It's not about changing the world. Just like in a two-minute drill, it's about each of us executing our role. So you, you, you have elementary school kids, and you're retired, and you know, you, you're a business owner, or, you know, you're, you're in a close neighborhood. or It's like we all have a different situation. And if this is the time that uh, the end of all things is near, as they thought in the first century, then it's really going to come down to whether we can execute this plan. And the two competitors in the final days are God and culture. And what we have to determine, you and as an individual and, we, and us as a church, is whose playbook are we going to run? Because God has laid it out for us. And Peter's just banging on the same thing over and over and over again. And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to run those plays? Are we going to play our spot where God has placed us? And it's going to change the outcome of the game. But we'll lose if we don't follow God's game plan. Is that like... That's right up there with letting scratching dogs and finding some spirituality in that, right? God, we, we don't have all the answers. I certainly don't. And there are, there are just struggles in our culture today. And I'm just so, it's so easy for me, and I'm sure for the folks listening to me right now, for us to just be drawn in and to think of ourselves and what we want. And yet we, we see the example of Christ and we sense the calling of our Father, our Heavenly Father on us to reflect His image in the world. And we want that to be the core of who we are so that we can demonstrate the ridiculous, reckless, extreme generosity of God in our world today. Toward that end, would you help us in Jesus' name?
And with those thoughts, let's stand and worship together. Thank you, church. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.